A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in middle school, when I was 13 years old, there was a strange day where they paraded everyone from my class into a computer lab. Now, I don't even know if they still have computer labs in school anymore, but they did when I was in school. And they paraded us all in from these big computers, and they sat down all these 13-year-olds, and they said, follow the instructions on the screen. We didn't know what we were doing, but we sat down, we got this computer in front of us, we got our mouse and our keyboard, and on the screen it says, test. Aptitude test. Now, as a 13-year-old, you don't know what the word aptitude means. So I just read aptitude test and read the first question and started answering. Now, I don't remember all the questions, but some of them were like, do you prefer the daytime or the nighttime? Is your favorite meal of the day breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Do you like being cold or do you like being hot? I mean, I don't know. There are like hundreds of these things. They just answered all these questions, and at the very end, the screen kind of turned blank for a second. You could hear the computer thinking. And then on the screen, it showed up. These are your top three future career choices. So it was a test to kind of see where your gifts and graces would lie as a 13-year-old to figure out what kind of career you should have in the future. So all of us are sitting there in this computer lab, and we are looking at our futures on the screen. My top three career choices were as follows. Number one, public speaker. <laughs> number two, high school English teacher. And regrettably, number three, politician. <laughs> My top three career future opportunities, public speaker, high school English teacher, and politician. Of course, as 13-year-olds, they printed out all these tests, and we went to the lunchroom, and we compared each other. We made fun of the guy who was told he was going to be a clown in the future, and we sort of marveled at the girl who was told she was going to be a movie star and all that sort of stuff. And you're 13, so you don't take this stuff very seriously. But as the years went on, it kind of frightened me a little bit about how on the nose this test was for me in particular. Because, friends, on any given week, I do all three of those things. I mean, what, what am I doing right now? I'm speaking publicly. <laughs> To all of you, I do this every week. Every week I go upstairs in our Sunday school room and I teach people about a book that was written thousands of years ago. And the worst of all is I have to be political every week too. I hate being political. And I don't mean political in the sense of I and you know, I'm someone who leans to the right or I'm someone who leans to the left. I don't mean political in the sense that I want to tell you who you should vote for in an election, but I have to be political every single week when I'm in here. And what I mean is I have to be very careful about what I say. I mean, that's ultimately what being political is. You know, it doesn't do the church any good if the pastor runs everybody off because of what the pastor says every week. But at the same time, we can't just leave people where they are. We, I mean pastors. I heard someone describe it one way. You know, you can't stomp on people's feet, but you've got to step on their toes. Because if you don't step on their toes, they're never going to move. So being political is trying to find this really difficult balance of how do you not run everybody off, but how do you not let everybody stay where they are? I mean, being political in the church is about sort of appealing to as many people as possible, but at the same time making sure they know that they can always be better. 
part of that being political, too, is just being exciting. It's being engaging, trying to gather people's attention. And I mean, I was thinking about that aptitude test this week, and I was thinking about what it means to be a pastor in the church. I thought, when was the last time you all were surprised by what the preacher said? Now, I know that you all have to deal with me every week, and you never know what I'm going to say, and you never know what I'm going to do, and I'll hand you the body of Christ for communion. I'll say, hey, you're a loser, but God loves you anyway. I know I'm weird. I get it. But prior to my arrival in your life, were you ever surprised by what you heard in church on Sunday? Were you ever sort of confused by what you heard? Were you unsure that someone was going to say something that would excite you or change you? Because during John Wesley's life, you know, the guy who founded the Methodist movement that led to the Methodist church, he lived and preached during a time where being in church was, to put it kindly, abysmally boring. I mean, we have collections of sermons preached during the time of Wesley's life, and the only good, therefore, is making you fall asleep at night. There's nothing else about them. They're so long. They're so boring. They don't say much of anything. And it was during this time that this guy came to prominence. So for a crowd to gather week after week to listen to what someone had to say, it wouldn't take much for them to be surprised. All congregants then and now, we, we bring with us certain expectations about church. We think we know what we're going to hear. We think we know the way we should hear it because we bring our previous experiences with us or we've watched a movie or a TV show about what church is like. So we, we don't just come in blind. I mean, we come in thinking we know what's going to happen. And Wesley loved to flip that upside down. He loved to take what he thought people's ex- expectations would be and then flip them upside down and come at them from a different way. He got this from a guy named Jesus. Jesus loved to tell stories that confounded people. Perhaps the most confounding story he ever told is this parable that we call the parable of the unjust steward. The basic gist of the story is that there's this guy who's in charge of some money for an estate, and he knows he's about to get fired, so he cooks the books. He changes the accounts of where all the money is so that it can benefit himself and his cronies in the future. And the owner of the property finds out that he's cooked the books and pulls him aside, and he congratulates him for being so smart. That's a weird story, Jesus. This guy has broken the law to benefit himself, and the owner comes and says, Hey, that was really smart. I want to I congratulate you on your shrewdness for stealing money from me. And that story doesn't make any sense. As we know how it's supposed to go, We know the unjust steward is supposed to be fired right on the spot, or he's supposed to be hauled off to jail. He is supposed to be made fun of, or at least beaten for what he did. But instead, Jesus takes this guy, this disreputable guy, a good for nothing, and says, He's the hero of the story. I'm talking about being surprised. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. We know that the tomb is empty on Easter. We know that Jesus hung for our sins. So we know that one of the reasons Jesus tells the story is because he is like the unjust steward. He has looked at the books of all of our sins and he said, no, I'm going to get rid of that one. I'm going to get rid of that one. I'm going to get rid of all of them. Jesus cooks the books in our favor. And Wesley learned from that. He learned the great joy and wonder that can come from taking an expectation and flipping it upside down. He learned that there's just something awesome about lifting up something and shattering it completely because that kind of preaching, it grabs people's attention and they don't forget it. Some of you in this room have heard quite literally a thousand times the body of Christ broken for you. 
And that's true and that's good. But you don't really remember anyone ever saying that to you. But you're going to remember someone saying, you are a loser and God loves you anyway. That's taking an expectation and shifting it around to make it memorable and right and true and good and beautiful. And so there's this day. Wesley's preaching to the people called Methodist, and he decides to take a previous expectation to flip it upside down. And he told them something that most clergy then and now wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. He said, if you want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to earn all the money you can. If you want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to earn all the money you can. I mean, that's definitely not what they expected him to say. When preachers talk about money, they usually berate money. They talk about money being something we're supposed to loathe. We lift up gold and silver as the banality of all evil. The people expected him to take out a bill, light it on fire, and say, you all are upset because I just killed your God. Which, to be fair, are all things we could and maybe we should say about money in church. Money really is, at times, the root of all evil. It can become a horrific wedge between people. It can become an idol that we worship. It can become so many terrible, terrible things. But before money becomes anything else, it is always first a gift from God. We talk about the word vocation. We often think someone meant to say vacation. Because we don't hear the word vocation very often. Vocation is a calling. And when we talk about vocation, we usually only use it in reference to clergy. And I can promise you my vocation is not a vacation. I do feel called to it. I feel like God has placed something on my life to do. You know, when you take things like public speaking and high school English teacher and politician, you mix it all together, you get this. I feel like I was called to this. But one of the things that churches fail to do is to show all Christians that vocation is not just something for pastors. Vocation is for all of us. The church is supposed to, like that aptitude test I took, it's supposed to help individuals see, discern how their gifts and graces can be used. And I don't mean just in the church, but in everything you do Monday through Friday. You're a teacher, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a musician. Whatever it is you do, what happens in this place on Sunday is supposed to affect what you do the rest of the week. Because God has called all of us to what we do. The question is whether we have ears and eyes to hear and see it. Each of us, each of us have been bestowed with gifts. Gifts that God can use for God's kingdom. In the places we work, the neighborhoods we live in, the friends we have. God calls us all the time in ways that are unseen and ways that are seen to work in God's kingdom. And when Wesley talked to his people about earning all they could, it wasn't just about earning money for the sake of earning money. It was about finding out what they were good at, using their tools and their advantages and their gifts and their graces to make the world better and different than it was before their arrival. And Wesley, I mean, he didn't pull punches. He was straightforward and to the point. He almost never told a little quippy story, something I do every Sunday. He just jumped right into it. Never leave anything till tomorrow which you can do today. Y'all ever heard that before? You ever hear your great-grandmother say that to you one time? You know who that came from? John Wesley. That came from him originally. Never leave anything till tomorrow which you can do today. Do not sleep or yawn while you're at work. 
Put your whole strength to the work that God has given you. Spare no pains. Let nothing be done by half or in a slight or careless manner. Never leave your business left undone if it can be done with work. That's all from John Wesley in the sermon, which is another way of saying, don't be lazy. They're all quotes from a pastor who started a church that led to this church. They're not just instructions for pastors. They're instructions for all Christians. Unless we think that Wesley was just some crazy dictatorial pastor, he didn't make this stuff up. He got all of it from the book of Proverbs. I shared last week, I don't like the book of Proverbs because it doesn't preach. You say something like, don't be lazy. What more can you say than that? Just say it 15 times. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. There is profit in hard work, but mere talk, it leads to poverty. Laziness brings sleep, and slackers go hungry. The lazy have strong desires, but they receive nothing, and the appetite of the diligent is satisfied. That's all from Proverbs. Every one of them. When you add what Proverbs has to say with what Wesley had to say, it really comes down to this. Don't be lazy and earn all the money you can. And in other churches, perhaps in some other denominations, that might suffice. A pastor could end the sermon by saying, stop being so lazy, earn all the money you can in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And send everybody on their merry way. But there is more to earning than just for the sake of earning. Wesley put it this way. He said, gain all you can, but do it by being diligent. Again, don't be lazy. Don't wait to get done what you can right now. All that stuff. But he also added this, gain all you can by growing in wisdom. Which is another way of saying, gain all you can by improving yourselves. Do you know that in the last year, one out of every four Americans didn't read a book? 25% of Americans haven't read a book in over a year. Part of being a Christian is a willingness to grow in our wisdom, in our knowledge. And I'm not saying that the only way you can do that is by books, but it doesn't hurt. But if you're not reading, if you're not trying to glean, if you're not trying to learn, then you're just going to stay where you are and you're never going to get to where God's calling you to be. Wesley says we've got to gain all we can by improving who we are. It means being willing to have our horizons expanded, to glean from other people in our lives as much as we possibly can. Unless we grow in wisdom, we're always going to stay the same. Part of that is learning how to use our wealth for larger purposes than our own desires. And there's a reason we've studied this. We've studied the human brain. We release more endorphins when we give someone a gift than when we receive a gift. It's crazy. We think it's all about give me, give me, give me, but we actually are happier when we're giving something to somebody else than we are when we receive something. And Wesley's final caveat for gaining all we can to me is is my absolute favorite. He says, we have to gain all we can, but we can't do it for paying more for it than it's worth. That's really interesting to me because he says we cannot gain all we can at the expense of our own health. We're creatures. We need rest. We need Sabbath. We need recreation for recreation. If you work 20 hours a day, seven days a week, you're going to burn out. You burn a candle by both ends, the only result is your candle disappears. We can't gain all we can at the expense of our own health. We also can't gain all we can at the expense of our neighbors or our souls. If our wealth is only the product of the devaluing of other people, if we make a profit off of evil, then, as Jesus says, we will gain the whole world, but we will lose our souls. There's a lot of bad work out there. All sorts of jobs that can fill up our wallets and fill up our bank accounts. But if they make the broken world more broken, then they are not for Christians. 
The last thing Wesley says is that we cannot gain it all unless we recognize from whom it comes in the first place. That's the big thing. I don't know about any of you, but I am really tired of these endless stories of the self-made individuals or these self-made millionaires, people who earned everything that they have all by themselves because it's complete baloney. No one is self-made, period, full stop, no one. All of us are creatures created by God. All of us have been purposed with gifts to participate in the kingdom in ways that are both big and small. All of us have been given people in our lives, family, friends, strangers, people who have shaped us and nurtured us. No one makes themselves out of nothing. We are who we are because of what has been given, always. The best thing about being a Christian is that in the eyes of God, the richest person on earth is of the exact same value as the poorest person on earth. God makes us who we are, not the other way around. Because really, it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account or how much money you have in your wallet right now, because in the end, we are all actually very poor. You can't take your money with you when you die. And no amount of money could buy you a spot in heaven anyway. It is the Lord who makes us worthy. It is the Lord who gives us what we could not get on our own. And through the craziest means possible, through death on a cross. God has already given to you and me more than we could ever ask for. Jesus has cooked the books in our favor. He looked at all of our sins and said, I'm going to get rid of that one. I'm going to get rid of that one. I'm going to get rid of that one. Because he's crooked. He's unjust. So yeah, we shouldn't be lazy. We should earn all we can, but it doesn't have squat to do with salvation. God has already given that to us scot-free. Instead, Christians are called not to be lazy and are called to earn all that we can so that what we earn can be used by God for things that we can't even imagine yet. And the great witness of the Lord is that we are not valued by the value we put on things in life. We are not valued by how much money we have. We are not valued by our annual income. We are valued only by God's love for us. That's good news. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Lord, in your strange wisdom, you've gathered us together, the poor and the wealthy, the skinny and the fat, the young and the old. You've looked at us and you've seen our own worth and our own value, something that we can't at times see. And you've said, hey, guess what? I'm going to make something of your nothing. I'm going to make you worthy. I'm going to make you the way I want you to be. God, as we gather in this place, please remind us in ways we can see and taste and touch that the way we devalue people in this life makes a mockery of your goodness. Remind us again and again, O Lord, that all of us have been created in your image. And at the very least, that means all of us have value. All of us have gifts that can be used for you, your son, and your spirit. And all God's people say, And so it is in in recognition of the value we all have. Whether we see it in other people or not, but the value God sees in us, I encourage us to all stand as we're able and to share signs of Christ's peace and love with those who are here.